Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at, well, you know where, but I'll tell you anyway. It's at blisterreview.com. Okay, today, Cody Townsend is back, and we are covering a number of big topics, including athletes and mental health, the affordable housing issues that most mountain towns are currently facing, the attempt by the far right to co-opt Pit Viper, which is just so bizarre. We talk about the ongoing consolidation of outdoor media and the fact that Cody and Elise are having a baby. And before we get going here, I just got one heads up for you. If you are a Blister member, we sent you an email over the weekend that included the dates for the next Blister Summit, which will be held this coming February. Now, we are giving Blister members first dibs on the spaces available for the summit, and then if Blister members don't take all of the available spots, then we will open things up to the general public in another week or so. So, Blister members, check your inbox. And if you want to guarantee a spot at our next Blister Summit, then if I were you, I would quickly become a Blister member. I would do that now and shoot us a quick note saying that you want to be at the Blister Summit. And frankly, if you are the kind of person that enjoys the Blister podcast or our Gear 30 podcast, then I am quite confident that you're going to want to be at the Summit event. So in the show notes to this episode, we will include a link that you can click to become a Blister member or you can go to you know, say it with me, blisterreview.com, and then right at the top of every single page of the website on the navigation bar, it very conveniently says, become a Blister member. So you click that, and then you'll also see all the other benefits that come with a Blister membership, including our personalized gear recommendations. So check it out, sign up, and then we will see you at the Blister Summit in February. And with that, let's go ahead and review the news, shall we? Well, Cody, how are you today? And where are you today? Well, I'm doing great. I'm a little jet lagged. Um, I actually woke up at a reasonable hour, not at 4.45 like I did yesterday. So I'm feeling a lot better than yesterday. But uh, back home in Tahoe, um, which is, I think, where we recorded last. In the in-between, I've been gone, but now I'm actually back home. So, so yeah. You made it back. Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing well. I do think, though, because you had told me that you had been wrestling with some jet lag, I think last night, I don't know if sympathy jet lag is a thing, but I was awake at like 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. and 5, and I almost texted you and was like, dude, should we just record now because you're probably awake? <laughs> probably, <up>. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so aside from my apparent sympathy jet lag, I'm, I'm doing quite well. And uh, yeah, Good. I was on the road too. Um, I didn't go as far away as you had gone. But yeah, I'm back from Ketchum and back in Crested Butte and uh, yeah, nice to be back. Good, good. You were, by the way, you were in Greece and you got at least a bit of climbing in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got some rock climbing in Crete, um, world-class limestone climbing. There was this one specific wall that I'd actually always looked at. Um, funny enough, 
I, I've been to Crete before. Um, we went there for a wedding. Um, Pep Fuas and his wife got married there five years ago. And um, Elise and I went to Crete beforehand, fell in love with it. It was awesome. As soon as I got home, I saw Jim Thornburg, who's a legendary climbing photographer, put a picture up of a wall in Crete. And I was like, what? There's climbing there? Because Greece is known like Kalimnos as the, the climbing island. And I just didn't think there was climbing on other islands. And this beautiful wall that's like laser cut. It's just like perfectly vertical. And it's right on the beach and so um got some uh been pretty much ever since i saw those photos it was like well if i'm going back to crete i'm gonna go climb there and uh yeah went climbing a couple days actually went kite surfing for my first time in 10 years again um, which was pretty funny because i had to convince them to rent me gear and they're like oh do you have a license and i'm like what you can have licenses for kite surfing now and i was like i used to be sponsored i used to compete can you just rent this stuff for me and they're like no you need to take a lesson i'm like trust me i'm fine like i learned literally 20 years ago when i was 18 and i used to like i was sponsored for kite surfing i'm fine and uh which but i hadn't done it in 10 years so i actually was a little inside a little nervous like shit are you gonna remember how to do this but sure enough it was fine um yeah did some bunch of trail running too which was really nice and then um yeah ultimately just had a nice kind of relaxing vacation um as we put it, and as I think we're about to talk to, it was our, it was our baby moon, um, which is a term I just learned. I've never heard that term in my life. No, someone was like, oh, you guys are going on your baby moon. I'm like, what the hell's a baby moon? That sounds very privileged. Um, it turns out it is. And it's like, yeah, essentially, right before you have a baby and before you can stop traveling and your whole life turns up on its head, you go for one last vacation. So, um, yeah, we announced it kind of to the public world. Um, uh, Elise announced it on her Instagram social media that uh, Elise is pregnant and we're going to have we're going to have a, a little baby boy on the way. So um, we're pretty, pretty stoked. A baby boy. Yeah. Baby Townsend is on the way. I haven't quite wrapped my head around this yet. I don't think I have either. <laughs> yeah, you probably haven't. I mean, so I think basically, as I've been thinking about this, we are either about to just get super athlete baby Townsend or this could be one of those where, you know, I'm sure you and Elise will do the very, very healthy and good thing uh, where it's like, oh, we don't want to, you know, pressure little baby Townsend into any of the things that we do. So, I was trying to envision, okay, we're either going to get super baby Townsend or what would the most opposite baby Townsend be like the things that you and Elise like least or are the worst at and I was like yeah. would that be like the violin no it'd probably be it would be math okay and like computer engineering probably is what I would go for um and trust me we go through both of those scenarios and we kind of laugh because you're like well we're gonna go skiing on the weekends and we're gonna go skiing so if like teenage uh, little Townsend doesn't want to go skiing. They're just going to be left at home. So, uh, but you know, like I know personally, like you rebel against your parents, right. you want to do something right. different. So we, we run through all those scenarios. We're either going to have somehow get the best of each other's genes and just be like super athlete, which would be incredible. Or it's going to be like, yeah, kind of shut in kind of nerdy and, and like wants to just do like computer engineering. Yeah. We're like, what the hell happened? 
happen. But either either way, yeah. you know, I'm definitely stoked. Like whatever whatever happens, we definitely we've actually already gone through that. You know, you're like, well, what sports would you want to get them into? And you're like, you know, it's like one of those things you expose them to a bunch of sports, but then just they pick what they want. And uh, the same goes for anything else. Like if it's if all of a sudden it becomes nerdy engineering and wanting to be, you know, edu- highly educated, you're like, cool go for that. So, um, I know these are all these things, but you're like, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Cause I think we're going to be dealing with like, uh, th- uh, three to six months of not sleeping yeah. and yeah. And puking and shitting all over you and dealing with that stuff first. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's interesting to go through the mental games of being a parent for the first time. Um, I gotta say, I'm really excited. And I think we're both really, really excited of just like new chapter. Um, in our lives, kind of uh, everyone I know that has kids says it's the best and worst thing you can do. Um, it's like, uh, to me, it's a lot of like, I think I I, I equate it to, I'm like, oh, it sounds like type two fun. So, um, you know, <laughs> it's going to be that. <laughs> I, can, I can see a book maybe in your future called type two parenting, you know, lessons yeah, we've learned. So, you can have that one. You can have that one. Cool. Yeah, that's a good one. I do like this idea of rebellious teenager Townsend and you guys are like, Hey, teenager Townsend, you want to go skiing now? He's like, screw you two. I'm doing math problems. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was like, all right, whatever. Right, you're like, all right, we're going skiing. Like, cool. Can you help me with my uh, my accounting? Because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> there you go. Well, anyway, congrats to you two. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, congrats on starting this possibly best and worst adventure of your life. Awesome. Yeah. Man, we've got some news to cover this week. Some big topics. We We got some big topics. We might as well dive in. The first one that I had um, proposed here, other than, you know, you guys are going to be parents, is athletes and mental health, which Mm -hmm. has, you know, this isn't the first time we've sort of heard anything about this in kind of mainstream news, but man, it sure seems like, at least to me, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, it sure seems like this has accelerated rapidly recently. I mean, do you, first of all, agree with that premise that it feels to you like we are like hearing a lot more about this all of a sudden, or you're like, no, this actually started three years, five years ago, or what's your timeline kind of look like on this? Yeah, no, I think, well, I think we're hearing the term, the catch-all term mental health and regarding to athletes um, a lot lately. And we're seeing, you know, everything from Naomi Osaka, who very publicly pulled out of tennis tournaments and majors because of, uh, as she described it, mental health kind of issues and break and taking time for herself to then obviously the story of this Olympics being Simone Biles pulling out for what she said was mental health issues. But I also kind of think it was like, well, is is mental health the, like the the best term for this because sometimes that connotates like maybe something more like disease or something that needs to be medicated or treated or is it more kind of in the terms of like she because she's got the yips as people would say in like golf or in baseball because what she's describing is she got the twisties um 
which I actually read a little bit more about um, and saw some great commentary. Alexi Godbu, professional skier from Canada. His girlfriend is an ex-Olympic gymnast. Um, she had an article where she was interviewed and talking about how like, yeah, she got the twisties. It's terrifying for a, for a gymnast and she ended up breaking her back. So you're like, well, is this kind of like, is mental health the best term for this? And it probably is because it's something that is in your mind as opposed to, you know, something physically, but it could result in very large physical damage. So we're hearing it more and more, but I think this has been going on forever. Um, it's just not described in terms of mental health. Like Michael Jordan in the prime of his career was mentally and physically exhausted and took two years off to go play baseball, you know, like in the prime of his career, he bailed on his team. So it's like uh, these kind of things have happened for a long time. We're just describing it in a different way. And I think that's where people are kind of rebelling against is that we're we're saying like, hey, this is a mental health thing, um, as opposed to it's just like maybe in the past, like, I'm just going through some shit. I need a break or whatever. Or or the person goes out there and performs poorly and hurts themselves and you have no idea about it. I think it's just uh, athletes are more communicative because of their platforms. They're used to communicating more and they're not burying it as inside. So to me, yes, I think it is is more of uh, at the forefront of what everyone's talking about right now. But I also think it has been going on for forever. We just didn't talk about it as much. What you just said kind of prompts me into a different question that I had not really been thinking about. And you're talking about this term mental health is maybe becoming a bigger and broader catch-all than maybe what we how we have thought about the term before. And what it spurred me to wonder about here is like on the one hand, and I'm thinking about a prominent NBA basketball player who uh, whose name I won't mention right now, but I think this was kind of a first case where this player a few years ago was being pretty outspoken about some of these issues. And I think, I'm not sure, and that's why I'm not going to mention the name, but I think in his case, this had more to do with like what we might call straight up depression. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if there was anything like suicidal ideation there, and I will suppose there was not. But what do you make of this if on the one hand, we're talking about a person who is dealing with, say, crippling depression versus someone else who maybe has what we're calling the twisties? Those don't seem the same to me. Are we okay to have this fall under? the same rubric. I'm not the best person to, to, I think, answer that. But to me, it's like, yeah, probably is. It's just degrees of of it. Um, You know, like, for instance, like if you were to, uh, there's three grades of MCL tears. You could have a grade one MCL tear, uh, grade two and a grade three. Grade three requires surgery. Grade one is just a little bit of rest, um, rehabilitation, those kind of things. But they all are labeled as a knee injury, but they're very different. so, and, you know, I've kind of thought about the same way. Um, you know, this past month, um, there's been more articles. Um, I'm just Drew Peterson, uh, professional skier with Solomon came out, um, uh, in outside magazine talking about some of the mental health struggles he's gone through. And those dealt with the same things, depression, suicidal ideation, uh, things I actually talked with him 
privately years ago. And, you know, that's, that's definitely, I think a very, like that is on the upper echelon of mental health and stuff that is dealing with, like he's dealing with multiple therapists, um, both for some of the stuff he's had with con- uh, post-concussion syndrome. So things of retraining his brain to just what we think of like psychiatry. Um, I, I'm not, I kind of like, yeah, mental health to me, it, it definitely encapsulates it all, but in a certain way, I also see it, even though I think it should be all labeled under there. Like you're like, yeah, kind of different, Maybe there's a different spectrum for it because dealing with the twisties and dealing with the yips, like, yeah, you do need to work on your own mind and maybe do some rehabilitation for your own mind, but it's not necessarily on the, the, the level that um, dealing with depression is or suicidal ideation or some of these other mental health issues that, you know, require serious, serious treatment to get through. So um, one is like for regarded to sports performance and one is regarded to like life performance, like, you know. Um, so it's, uh, it is interesting to me. It's, um, you know, the annoying thing is we tend to focus on the loudest and dumbest commentators. And that's what's happened in this Olympics is, you know, a few sports and political commentators start yelling about Simone Biles and then the rest of us all blow up about it because it's so infuriating to hear it. Um, but, uh, you know, like this, this whole thing, you're like, yeah, this is sports. This is what happens. Like it sucks for Simone Biles that this happened right during the Olympics, but I guarantee a little bit of part of it is she does feel the pressure of the world on her right now. Um, you know, I know personally, I've never truly dealt with like mental health issues, but I do know, like, I remember after the crack went viral, that was what I would say was the closest time I ever dealt with it was the months uh, preceding that, like was the most pressure I've ever felt as a person, as a skier. Like I had, I had sponsors, one sponsor in particular being like, how can you capitalize on this right now? What can you do to one up it like right now? And I'm like, are you kidding me? And like, and and you do feel like you want to go into a shell and like you want to insulate yourself from the world. So someone like Simone Biles is feeling that and then it's leading up to the Olympics. And then all of a sudden that's just like makes it so she's loses herself in the middle of a double twisting backflip. Like, yeah, like she needs to work on that because she might get hurt. So it's, it's really interesting. I think it's also, you know, even though I said before, like we've been dealing with this forever, I think it's also, we live in such a new society where like every take and the worst takes are absolutely blown up that someone like Simone Biles can see at the forefront, the worst possible thoughts about her. And then that becomes like the trending topic. And you're like, God, that is terrible. Whereas before we didn't see that as much, you know, like, Michael Jordan, even though, you know, he had uh, mental and physical health issues that he dealt while he took his leave from basketball, he wasn't Twitter didn't exist. So he's only seen takes from a, a few opinion writers for newspapers and the headlines of major newspapers and TV. So it's not like you're just bombarded with like someone like Matt Walsh, who's like a conservative commentator and like all of a sudden commentating about Simone Biles. You're like, that is not in your realm. Why are you talking about this? So, um, you know, the only reason I feel comfortable talking about it is because you're like, well, I'm a professional athlete and I do know a little bit about it. I don't know the pressure of the entire world on your shoulders, like Simone Biles. I don't know the pressure of the Olympics, but I do know what it's like to compete. And I do know what it's like to try and perform um, when you're under a lot of pressure. So it's kind of like the only reason I feel comfortable talking about it because I have a little bit of a relation to it. Yeah. And and I think, you know, part of this, which has been the like, 
how could you do this? You're letting down teammates or, you know, you should have given that spot to somebody else. I just, you know, I talk to a lot of athletes on different podcasts. We do kind of week in and week out. And, you know, I would say that it has become quite a common thing when at least we're talking about the world of skiing, backcountry skiing, free ride mountain biking is the whole like when somebody is standing on top of a line or about to, you know, is considering doing a trick or hitting a jump. We talk a lot about in our mountain communities about like, are you feeling it mentally? Do you feel ready? And if something, you know, like we talk a lot about not overriding, not overriding the like, uh, it doesn't feel like it's lining up for whatever reason. And I feel like our communities are maybe doing a better job than ever of like respect that. Do you agree? Yeah, I kind of agree. I don't know if it's publicly talked about uh, as much, but I do think like just that term that you kind of talk about of like feeling it and whatnot. Like I know I've gone through that. Like there's these times when when you're on top of a like serious line and I'll like do little things like stamping my feet and I can just like kind of feel it in my legs that I'm like loose and feeling confident. And you're like, I can do anything right now. And then I'll do the exact same kind of setup. And I'm just like, my legs aren't stomping in the perfect way as I'm like kicking them on the top of a line. And I'm like, you're off. And you know, you got to make decisions based on that gut feeling that you're like not perfectly on it because there's a lot of risk involved. And that's what I see with Simone Biles too, is like, you like, she's got a lot of risk involved. It seems like, oh, it's padded and all these things. Like, Talking of when Alexi Godbo's girlfriend talks about getting the twisties and breaking her back, mm -hmm. being a gymnast, like these are the kind of yeah. things you have to think about. And I think in our sports, there's so much risk involved, like lining up a rampage line. And if you're not feeling it, you're probably not going to push it. But when you feel it, that's when your like mind and body are perfectly in sync. Then you can do feel like you can do anything. And I think as athletes, when you're standing on that stage, you felt that a ton. You know what it's like to feel like in the zone at the top of a line and or the beginning of your whatever competition. And then you also know what it feels like to be a little off. And when I read Simone's stuff, as she's saying, like going into the competition, she's never felt like that before. I can fully understand that. And I think a lot of action sports stars and even just like, you know, your casual uh, users yeah. can kind of understand that. There's certain times that you're just like, I'm not feeling this. It feels weird. It's a whole different parameter when the cameras are on and the competition is on and a gold medal's on the line though. Um, and those are the things you kind of deal with. One, so like there's two things to it is like one, this is just competing. This is just what it's like. And, you know, certain people go through it. I think actually, personally, actually, I think every top athlete goes through this at some point. It's just now more public. Um, I think every major sports star at some point has some sort of slump that is related to their mind body connection or some sort of mental health issue, as we kind of like to say it now. Um, and, you know, now we just kind of understand it more and are seeing it more up front. Um, I think people are getting angry because it seems like mental health maybe isn't the best term, but ultimately it kind of still is. So I, I don't know. I, I just 
personally, I feel bad for Simone, you know, like when that's like, you're like, yeah, she's, you think she wants to be dealing with this right now? She would think she wanted to pull out of her best events, think she wanted to pull out on her team. No, but this happens. Like Novak Djokovic just pulled out of the bronze medal doubles match um, with his teammate thereby giving the the bronze medal to the uh, the Australian competitors and like that's not blowing up nearly as much so it, he literally talks about it. he was mentally and physically exhausted that happened this morning so it's just um you know you mean, obviously you mean arguably I, the greatest tennis player of all time sort of yeah, like exactly. the greatest gymnast of all time weird so exactly. this happens and it's yeah, <laughs> this happens and people are like trying to be like, she can't call herself the goat if she is that way. You're like, I don't know. Djokovic is calling himself yep. and he could, he's going to take over the major lead and he was going for a golden slam yeah. this year. So you're like, so this is just the shit that happens as athletes. And, you know, now we're talking about it. Obviously, there is, you know, there's a reason. And I think there's a little baked in reason. There's a little bit of misogyny and racism undertinged with it. Whereas like, you know, people aren't talking male athletes nearly as like harshly, but um, I see the way that women get treated on social media. Um, I see it when, with my own wife. Like men like to tell women what to do a little bit more. So I think there's a little bit of misogyny based into into this. Um, you know how much I don't know, but I do definitely think the reason why Simone Biles is blowing up as opposed to any other athlete like a Djokovic is you know men like to tell women what to do. <laughs> it's it's a shitty part of of media and of our society, but I think that's a little 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 factor in it as well. Hmm. Next topic. You should introduce this one because I can't wait to hear how you introduce this one. Okay. Yeah, this one was interesting and yeah, I kind of put it in our notes a little like side note. Um yeah. so this was an article um from the Daily Beast and it was sung this sunglass company is at war with far right extremists. So it's an article that goes into talking about how Pit Viper um, Pit Viper being a ski brand started by Chuck Mumford. And I, there's one other co-founder who I forget his name, but Chuck Mumford is a guy I've known for a long time. He's one of the like funniest, loosest human beings and a guy that you just hang out with. And you're like, this guy is great. And he started Pit Viper just like selling these old frames with crazy paints. And the thing is absolutely blown up. Like everyone knows about him now. Like they're massive. You got stars like Gronk wearing them as an official athletes and like music stars they're becoming like they're giant i've heard some of the numbers they're doing they're they're doing very well for themselves which is awesome because i'm like oh this is like ski bum yep. like to the max just killing it, it off yep. of this one idea well uh the what has happened recently was the pit fibers are starting to get um, adopted among some of the the worst of American people being that very racist, very uh, white nationalist type of people are wearing pit vipers. So about a week ago, two weeks ago, um, I saw there was this video from the CPAC, the conservative political action committee or whatever, the big um, conservative kind of uh, gathering and Nick Fuentes, who is a young guy and his compatriots, Nick is like, he's pretty much a neo-Nazi. I mean, it's harder to describe anyone like that. And, you know, you don't want to throw that term around lightly, but he's like very anti-Jew. He's very racist. He's very misogynistic. He's a young guy. He's kind of the new face of that. Him and his crew stormed into CPAC because they weren't allowed in there all wearing pit vipers. 
So I texted Spencer Harkin, who Spencer's a buddy of mine. He's runs their marketing for Pit Viper and their social media. And I was like, hey, dude, I don't know if you've seen this, but Nick Fuentes is wearing Pit Vipers. And it was he was like, oh, shit. I did not see this. And he immediately was like, we started talking about it. And he's like, uh, I was like, I recommend it. I was like, get out in front of it, man. Like you gotta, if people start seeing that he's wearing Pip Viper, the story's going to change as opposed to if you guys get out in front of it and they got out in front of it. Well, they put a tweet out right away. That was like something along the lines of like, Hey, is any advice on how to get loser racist like Nick Fuentes to stop wearing Pip Viper? Um, that tweet absolutely blew up because all of a sudden, like far right extremists on um, on Twitter started commenting on it. It got retweeted uh, like hundreds, thousands of times, um, went mainstream media at that point. And then the article started being like sunglass company is at war with far right extremists. Um, so that's my backhand into it. I was kind of alerted them to this and was like strategizing with them. I'm like, you guys should probably get around this. And it's like, I'm not a pit viper athlete. Um, I'm not like, you know, I don't even, I wouldn't necessarily even wear them. They're not kind of my style or brand, but it's like, these are friends. These are ski industry guys, like little protect them. And you don't want to see them get taken down by the worst of, of humanity. So uh, kind of helped try and support him on that. Um, and it seems like they did a good job because the story wasn't racists are wearing pit vipers. It's pit viper is at war with racists wearing pit vipers. And they did a funny thing. They were essentially anytime they identify someone buying that's like part of Nick Fuentes crew or racist, whatever, they're going to be donating a chunk that entire sale to the Southern poverty, uh, loss. Oh, I forget. Uh, uh, Oh yeah. Southern poverty law center. So that they're like going to be donating that money to, to the things that those people hate. So, um, it's good and good to see them. I mean, they're in a definitely a bit of a pickle. Um, you know, they, they're marketing and branding, which is like fun and funny, but it's somehow been able to be adopted by these kind of people. Um, you know, it all of a sudden those kind of people start wearing your stuff you're going to alienate your base customer because these 5% of people that are horrible people, like you're, skier at Alta is not going to want to be associated with Nick Fuentes. And if someone like Nick Fuentes is up there parading pit vipers around, like you're going to lose your company. So they're, they're in a definitely a bit of a crux point right now, because, um, you know, if that becomes what's associated with pit vipers the most, then the, I would say that the things are going to not go well for them. Okay. You had made an interesting, you know, what you wrote in our little doc that we share when we're always going through what we're going to talk about in these uh, episodes. You just wrote the question, what do you do when people you don't want adopting your brand adopt your brand? How did Pit Viper get into this? And I would say just straight up, Pit Viper did nothing to sort of encourage this. I think if you, I mean, I'll invite everyone, go look at their Instagram account, look at their posts. It might not be your cup of tea, right? But like you cannot, like there might be a case where we, you can imagine a certain company that's doing a bunch of like 
USA only showing like a certain kind of a, a certain kind of branding or marketing would like easily kind of veer into adoption by a particular group. That is not Pit Viper. That is no. not Pit Viper in this case, right? Yeah, they do the USA thing and like great. Like I love America too. I don't I think we do a lot of messed up stuff in this country, but like I think you can both be like we do messed up things in here and be like proud of the country. Like but if you look yeah. at their marketing, there is all kinds of things that Pit Viper <laughs> puts out very much in the forefront that is not aligned with at least what I know about far-right extremism, right? So I just want to make clear, I don't think Pit Viper did anything here to be like, oh, well, anyway, this is a company that they were sort of, you know, presenting a kind of image that was easily glommed on by these folks. So just to be clear, I, I really, I'm here to say at least, I don't think they did anything. I don't think they have done anything um, to sort of in- encourage or invite this. By the way, the other thing to your question is like, what do you do when people you don't want adopting your brand adopt your brand? I just made a comment in a different doc. I was like, this is what you do. And in that Daily Beast article, there's the sentence, Pit Viper responded with a meme campaign telling extremists that we didn't make these for your bullshit. (laughs) I'm like, what else do you want? You know, like... Totally. Yeah. Pit Viper, you're doing good. You're doing good. I think they've done good too. And I was talking with Spencer about that. of being like, look, like you, you do not want any of these people associated with it. So go after them, go after them hard because people that sympathize them with them, you're like, cool. You don't want them either. Right. Like this is pretty easy. Like, and I agree. They haven't done anything explicit to warrant this. Um, but it's interesting to me too, because you're like, they put up like, you know, a July 4th post with a lot of American flags and people in American flag speedos chugging like a uh, natural light. And because racists have adopted the American flag and wrapped themselves in it, they kind of see that as something that is like, oh, that that connects with us. And you're like, when the fuck did this happen? Um you know, I think we have a weird relationship with the flag in America. I know growing up in uh, Santa Cruz, I went to a high school of like 2000 kids and it was half Hispanic. Um, and the there's racists that were kind of in friend groups kind of on the exterior that would show up to school in like American flag shorts and an American flag sweatshirt and yell at Mexicans to go home and whatnot. So I remember being a very young age starting to see like this association with uh, the American flag and racism. And it's so like sad that they've been able to adopt it so heavily because yeah, we should be able to um, be proud of our country, rock our flag on July 4th while chugging Natty Light and having fun with your friends and not be as a, that's a call sign for your racist company. So I'm going to adopt your stuff because they, that's not the intent. And it's like, what, the, how the hell did this happen? How did, how did white nationalists wrap themselves in the flag so much that you can't even do do that in your own marketing? Um, otherwise, you might be so sort of like silently calling out to those people. You know, that's where I see it as like, you know, just because they put a flag in there maybe was the thing. But you're like, we sh- you should be able to put a flag in your freaking marketing and not be 
seemingly quietly reaching out to racists. So, um, and the other thing, yeah, like you said, they're doing a lot of the right stuff. They're super diverse. Their pride month posts were absolutely hilarious and great. Um, and I think if it's going to be a long battle for them, but they'll, they'll hopefully win out. They're doing everything that's the right with us and they're good guys. And I don't think they're going to massively change their marketing other than telling racist fucks to get lost and stop wearing our shit. Um, so, uh, but interesting that it went this big, like it literally, you know, Daily Beast, major news, uh, major journalists were retweeting it. Um, that very, that one uh, tweet that Spencer put up, like pretty well went viral. So yeah, that was where it was kind of funny that I was like, felt like I had a backhand <laughs> in it. But, um, <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, you want to, you're like, oh shit. And I'm like, well, fuck, I don't want to see this happen to buddies of mine. <laughs> and so yeah, I think they're doing a good job. Where are we going next? Uh, so, um, next thing, little topic, uh, this is something that's been going on for a while now. Um, some of the stories that came out are for a bit, uh, more in the past. So I can't say I was restricted to this month, but what has happened this month, um, is in regard to this. So pocket media, um, which is now outside media had just bought pink bike and a host of other kind of like bike publications. And so we were kind of talking about is, um, this story, um, the older story is from Axios. Um, and it's in regard to this company, a VC funded company called pocket media, buying up a lot of outdoor publications. Um, I mean, their list of what they are currently own in the outdoor space is absolutely wild. I'm like pulling it up right now. Um, let me see. So everything from outside, outside TV, Gaia, ski, climbing, rock and ice, gym climbers, cycling tips, pink bike, trail forks, um, Peloton magazine, Velo News, um, Cairn, outside business journal, Velo Press, Velo Swap. Like they have a massive consortium of outdoor industry uh, media titles. And I think what you and I wanted to talk about is like kind of this consolidation in outdoor media and what's going on right now, because we haven't seen anything like this for a long time. I mean, the latest thing we can talk about would be kind of the consolidation of like what was once known as like 10 media, the enthusiast network. So when uh, magazine publications like powder and bike and surfer and surfing got bought up originally by private equity and then repackaged and sold probably like five, 10 times to now most of those titles being closed. So um, pretty interesting kind of thoughts with it. Um, I don't know kind of what you're, what you've seen with it, um, what your take on it is, and if you have any other little stories or things behind it. I'm going to volley back to you first. Okay. So, you know, again, you, the, the kind of single question you put forward was, is this consolidation good for outdoor consumers? So in your view, what do you think? You know, this is, I know we kind of sometimes do a lot of both sides takes um, on this podcast, but I do see both sides being positive, but I also see some negative sides to it. Um, kind of start with a negative first off, like consolidation in media has proven to be something that is not good. Um, you know, we've definitely seen it in newspapers and mainstream media outlets when it comes to consolidation via private equity. It's been bad for journalism. It has been bad for media in general. Um, my mom was a journalist. She pretty much retired right before her newspaper got bought. Um, her newspaper, you know, she 
her newspaper, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, small town, little newspaper, but was big enough where she was able to be nominated for Pulitzers from her stuff. Um, it was like a legit newsroom and she did important work to now the Santa Cruz Sentinel forget who they're owned by, but one of those big media conglomerations now has like four employees and they just repost AP wire stories. And there's like one local story, but there's really nothing going on. And, you know, the Santa Cruz Sentinel used to hold Santa Cruz politicians to, to the fire, to dig up corruption, to, you know, to be the voice of, of people of showing like, Hey, exposing things that are wrong in our community or things that need to be fixed. That was journalism. And what can consolidation did was eliminate that. So, you know, we don't have that those problems necessarily in the outside space, but consolidation in general has proven to be bad for media. And that's where I look at this with a bit of trepidation because you're like, well, if we're consolidating all these major titles, what's going to happen to the messages that come out of it? Um, where are they going to be doing the same things that the private equity did, which is eliminating jobs to streamline their their uh, you know their revenue and to get rid of essentially overhead? And are they going to be outsourcing and paying lower wages? Is this is this going down that route? So those are the things I'm definitely nervous about. The other thing on the flip side, though. You know, we're seeing so much traditional um, uh, media not working. The advertising model isn't necessarily working anymore. So we saw, if everyone pays attention, like Ski uh, Magazine has definitely gone more digital and they've also gone to a subscription model. I personally, not necessarily willing to fork over the monthly the monthly subscription to read some online Ski Magazine articles. But let's say there was a kind of catch-all subscription for all these titles, well, that's actually pretty good. And maybe this is something because of subscription model, we can support all these titles so that they continue to exist in our space because the advertising model isn't working. And my kind of um, like example of this working is The Athletic. Um, the Athletic in the traditional sports world has done incredibly well on a subscription model. They they stole away some of the best writers for all the newspapers and have done an incredibly good job. One, from a consumer standpoint, like I am very willing to pay the subscription cost because their reporting is so good. Um, to also like they're supporting the sports journalism through a totally different model and their business is doing really, really well because of it. So I kind of see it was like, well, maybe this is just the necessary answer to keep these kind of titles alive. And if that's the case, then it's going to be a good thing. Um, what we don't know is what are the intentions of, of the board and of the funding behind it. So that's where there's a big question mark for me. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm either in a very good position to kind of talk about this or, you know, I'm I'm happy for people to say I'm biased, right? I mean, I run an independent you own a media company, <laughs> yeah, an independent media company, right? And uh, on that question of is this consolidation good for outdoor consumers? And I did just actually like in the past week have a journalist reach out and ask me that exact question. I definitely think it. The answer is a very big. It depends you know, and which I think you've sort of said something along those lines too. Like, so here's just a couple things. On the one hand, this is just statement of fact. I know that one of the 
titles that Outside purchased had been notorious for taking forever to actually pay their writers and photographers. And I have heard that since the acquisition, this has gotten better. So like <laughs> you, your eyes are yeah, wide totally. open. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, totally. I've, I've, I've dealt with that as when I used to, used to write, um, and was, you know, quite often writing for magazines. Uh, yeah, they, a lot of these companies can take years to pay you $200. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> insane. And, and I think really yeah. unethical, really unethical. And yeah. so I have heard some reports where like that has been improved upon and it's like, yay, we are out of the woods of unethical behavior, you know, like, so, but, you know, so that that's one thing to say that I have heard, and actually from a couple of publications that were acquired, that the folks there are like, so far, this maybe is a better, let's call it whatever, a working environment, at least when it comes to that type of thing of like, oh, so you actually get paid for the work you do? In general, on the topic of acquisition, really what it comes down to for me is, will that acquisition help the content of a given title or given magazine get better? Will it allow that publication to better execute on its mission or its reason for being? And I think if a company or a title can actually say yes to that, then I'm, you know, I'm not inherently against an acquisition. But when it's like, oh, this is definitely not going to help the content get better. And in fact, we're going to see a reduction and let's just try to do it dumber and faster and cheaper. I think for those of us who actually care about these different outdoor communities, that's the part where we should have real pause a real hesitation, you know? And then, yeah, I mean, another thing that you've already touched on is the question, another question, would a given acquisition help a title be more financially viable, right? That's a big thing that media companies are sorting through. And as we've done it over the years, you know, you were talking about, you know, you see something come up online and maybe there's a paywall and you're like, yeah, I don't want to pay for that. The way I think of it from a content creation point of view, that's the job of the content creator to actually make it worth. Like if we're putting stuff up on Blister that no one gives a shit about, well, then that's on us. And maybe we deserve to go out of existence. You know what I mean? Like make it worth the community's time or money or go away. And, you know, we don't do everything in the world on Blister, but the stuff we do put out, man, we bend over backwards and work our asses off to make this high, high quality. And frankly, when I look around in some other places, I am like, yeah, I could have written that in three and a half minutes. And I think that just gets into the question of consumers need to be discerning and figure out like, man, this publication tends to consistently kill it in terms of the content or whatever it is they're producing. And then we are all learning as consumers, we need to support those publications that we most believe in, right? 
And if you're like, yeah, um, that publication, it's pretty half-assed and I don't ever learn anything or it's not that entertaining, then don't support it and it may go out of existence. And I'm fine with those rules. I'm fine with those rules. That seems fair to me. Yeah, I I agree. And I think what the, like, you know, you look at something like Powder, which I do think was still providing a good service, people loved, but it was more the business model just kind of stopped working and in that sort of way. And so that's where I look at this is like, I, I agree with those rules. If you're not producing good enough content for people that are willing to pay for, then you probably shouldn't exist. And you're like, maybe this consolidation allows for a kind of thing where you're willing to pay for a good content as long as the content stays good. Um, as long as they don't do the private equity model, which is just to slash and burn and try and make uh, you know, the revenue, the most important thing. So what their intentions are, I don't know yet. Nobody knows entirely. We do know their board is primarily made of, of the, the people, the VC capital that came through. So, you know, there is definitely going to be that importance laid upon it, but the, they also could be looking at it and being like, look, these, these, these entities are drawing enough eyeballs. If we uh, make them all together and charge this much, like $9.99 a month, we're going to be doing well on revenue and everything survives. And that could be just the end all of this is that these things are producing good content that people are willing to pay for. Therefore, they survive because it's we we still need media. I mean, as much as you want to like people say like, oh, everything in social media, like that experiment that happened in Australia where essentially they were banning um Facebook or Australia banned linking um, on on Facebook to news sites. And when they did that, there was this huge battle between uh, Facebook and Australia. As soon as they kind of disallowed link sharing, unless Facebook was paying these individual media entities, uh, Facebook's traffic dropped 30 percent in Australia. So like you're like Facebook really relies on good media coming out and worthy kind of news articles or content coming out because they're just a content sharing place. They're not a content developer. So, you know, these media outlets taking that people still pay attention to it. They might share it through social media, but they're definitely paying attention to it. So now it's just, are you willing to pay for it? Um, just like, are you willing to, I'm, I'm willing to pay for the athletic subscription love it they do enough stuff where i'm willing to to support it so um yeah it'll be interesting i'm curious to see how this all how this all goes yeah me too and you know to come back to the question is this good for outdoor consumers i'm going to stick with my it depends but i think it could be and i think it could not be and i think we are going to see for sure and it's going to be interesting to see what this looks like so um yeah Next, time for Blevins Corner. Yeah, time for Blevins Corner. So, um, Jason Blevins, our favorite journalist in the outdoors, wrote uh, an article, which he's done a lot of articles about this, but um, I kind of want to offshoot it. But the article is flooded with tourists. Colorado mountain towns are starting to limit short term rentals to combat housing crisis. So, something you and I have talked about a lot the housing crisis in mountain towns. It's just a continual topic. Um, we don't have any solution other than we continue to be like, yeah, this is a problem, this is a problem. 
But what the article kind of went into was each individual town, these mountain towns in Colorado, and what they're trying to do. So what I kind of wanted to talk about was almost ranking each of these ideas because we're talking about solutions. And this is something, again... I don't I don't really know that much when it comes to development and urban issues and you know housing issues other than like it's a serious issue. We're obviously seeing this across America and major cities, but I think it's pretty acute in mountain towns specifically um, because one, a lot of people want to live there and two, the people that uh, you know need to live there to make them work uh, are based in a service sector and a service sector that doesn't necessarily pay enough for people to just live to pay rent at basics. I mean, buying a house is completely out of the question if you're working the service economy in a mountain town, but if, uh, you know, just being able to pay rent. So I kind of listed these in our um, in our notes and wanted to go through through these ideas each town is going through. So um, I'll kind of go quickly and then maybe just pick like one or two to talk about. But um, so here they go. Frisco, um, they're kind of doing a thing where non-residents can't short term rent. So second homeowners can't buy a a house and immediately start short-term renting that. Telluride is restricting the number of short-term rentals, so they're trying to put a cap on it. Uh, Steamboat is suspending short-term rental applications for 90 days. Uh, Crested Butte and Buena Vista are doing a percentage cap, so similar to Telluride, but like, you know, 10% of houses can only have uh, short-term rental permits. Breck is increasing short-term rental fees, so essentially increasing their tax base. And then Vail, they're thinking about regulation. So um, kind of fitting for Vail, in my opinion. They're just thinking about it. (laughs) Um, So I don't know what you kind of wanted to talk about and what ideas to kind of solve this um, going forward. In Crested Butte right now, I mean, we just had a town of Crested Butte city council meeting where many, many members of the community stood up and kind of weighed in on this. And this was specifically, um, the question was raised about placing a moratorium on short-term rentals for uh, 12 months. And it was kind of a landslide in that meeting for people saying, let's hit the pause button on short-term rentals. And that was approved. So this is happening in the town of Crested Butte. You know, our headquarters are up here in Elevation Hotel, which is in Mount Crested Butte. And it is sort of a, it's a different community with a different town council. And here that has been, there's been a little bit more, it was not quite as uh, of a unanimous sentiment from folks in town about hitting a moratorium button. So anyway, but that's what's happening literally right now at the local level in our community. My whole thing, though, is if we hit the pause button on short-term rentals indefinitely, let's say. Let's say this wasn't just a 12-month thing, but just there were no... And what this means is there will be no new short-term rentals approved. Everything else is effectively grandfathered in. That doesn't change, right? Like, it doesn't change the, the current situation. The best idea I've heard... In, in my opinion, and I'm probably wrong, but the best idea that I've heard on this is the idea of when people are buying homes in 
mountain towns. And the intention is to buy these just as investment properties. Those should be taxed as if they were effectively a hotel with a commercial, right? A commercial property. And to me, that makes a ton of sense because that's effect. It's like, Cody, if you and I were like, um, I don't know, hey, let's go in and buy a condo in Park City, Utah. And because we think there's a pocket there that's going to be on the rise and blowing up and like, let's just go in, we'll get this condo. And all we're going to do is rent it. That's a commercial venture. That is an investment thing. That is a business. And I think there is a ton of that going on in these mountain towns, whether it's an individual, like I just described, an, an individual or a couple of individuals doing this or business property management folks and developers doing this. That's that's a business. Short-term rentals are not being taxed like that currently. So I know that that is a change that at least here in Colorado would have to happen at the state level. Communities cannot vote that into existence. But I do think that would change the game a bit. Um, so anyway, what are your thoughts on this? Or do you agree with what I've just said? Or do you, are, do you have questions about making that move? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with it. And again, I don't think any of us are smart enough or nor studied enough to know the potential impacts and outcomes and the the, the side effects that could come from it that are unforeseen to us. Um, but I do think that is a good way because that is an issue. And it's an issue here in Tahoe, um, where Placer County just suspended uh, short-term rental apps as of yesterday. So People are buying homes from the Bay Area, and we'll say the catch-all Bay Area because you know you can make as a at a basic job one hundred eighty thousand a year, which you're not even remotely making up here. Buying a house up here and just boom, straight away short-term renting it, uh, vacation renting it, whatever they're doing because you can build a million-dollar home and you look at the uh, and get four thousand dollars a month in short-term rental fees, and you're like, well, I paid off my mortgage and I'm just not losing money, and I bought a house, and you know thereby decrease the amount of people that can actually live there. But I'm actually, you know, making money on this house that I just bought, this million dollar house that's way overvalued. So you make it so you're like, cool, well, you now have to pay 25% tax on that. And you're like, well, that does those economics don't work out quite as much. And so you need to create incentives and disincentives to, to do those things. So I think that is a, a potential thing. What I don't like is definitely the caps and the just suspending because then you're not really dealing with anything. And you're also just grandfathering in a bunch of people when the problem is already happening. So you're saying like, oh, cool, like 10% of houses can do it. You're like, well, you're not solving the problem because we're, you know, the original, the people that bought in and are already doing this, they're, they're good. But like, let's say I save up enough money for 10 years to do this myself and I can't do it. Um, but they can. So you're like, this creates this weird kind of perverse uh, system where, you know, older people and wealthier people are already good, but people that are trying to create wealth can't do it. Um, what I will say, I'm curious what Frisco did, um, saying non-residents can't short-term rent. So that to me seems like you're creating one, an incentive for 
local people to buy homes. Um, and you're allowing them, if they live in that community, they're a part of that community, they're part of that tax base, they work for some sort of entity there, in order to be able to afford that home, they might be able to short-term rent you know, a room out of it or half their house or do something like that. That to me seems like could have some potential benefits because you're going to disincentivize or not allow um, investment commercial style properties that are just for short-term rentals. Let's say if you do buy an investment home, a second home, you can long-term rent it. It's got to be minimum year leases or whatnot. So all of a sudden the you're, you're creating livable spaces for workers. So great. Um, you can do that, but you can't short-term rent it. But then non-residents, people that are a part of the community can do it. That seems like it has some, I don't know, interest to me. I haven't thought through every single kind of potential side effect. Um, uh, but that was the idea that I thought kind of was the, the newest idea, the most different idea, and something that was interesting to me. Um, the other thing we kind of don't talk about here and that I saw personally witnessed up here in Tahoe City was like the actual policing of this and how the hell they're regulating it. Because for instance, last year, 2020, Placer County suspended all short-term rentals. They were like, okay, you know, the pandemic's happening. We're trying to limit travel. You can't short-term rent. That didn't didn't stop anyone. This place was as busy as it has ever been. And people were doing getting around it by, you know, Airbnb for a month because um, they said you had to be a minimum of a month. So they do for two nights and they'd say, call it a month and then cancel it out. And then just they got around it and no one's actually policing, them, handing out fines. There's no like there's no regulatory body to happen this. And you can't expect like the sheriff coming and knocking on your door and being like, oh, you're short term renting. Um, so like how how the hell are you going to regulate this? Like right now they just suspended applications for short term rentals, but doesn't mean you, like I can't short term rent my house the next day. And, um, you know, sure, that'd be illegal. But are they actually going to do anything about it? Probably not. And say there's a 99% chance they're not going to do anything. So that's the other thing that's come up with this is like, it's really easy to get around and there's no regulatory boards to it. Um, it reminds me of something I just watched the Netflix show Dirty Money that they did on the the Kushner family. And a big topic of it was, you know, they're predatory slumlords and they're doing horrible stuff for their residents of their apartment buildings in New York, New Jersey. And the New York Housing Authority just doesn't can't follow through on regulating them. They'll fine them and then like literally never collect the money for the fine. Um, they're so small um, that they just, they don't do anything. So you're like, how do we create regulatory boards for this as well? Um, so I don't know. That's the one that holds the the most water. I know we kind of talked about uh, earlier and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but um, it sounds like you might be kind of going deep a little bit on this topic um, because I mean, one, we're all talking about like, this is an issue but doesn't seem like there's many much depth beyond there and i'm curious to you know you said you got something going on in the next couple months with uh with blister yeah in fact so we will post this conversation we're recording this saturday saturday morning this will go up monday morning and then the next week's blister podcast i'm about to have a conversation with um Jenny Stuber. And I would encourage 
everybody listening to this, if you are interested in these topics, to read this book. Uh, Jenny is a sociologist at the University of North Florida, um, but she has just come out with a book called Aspen and the American Dream. I'm going to be talking to her in the next couple of days about this book and about a lot of these topics. But basically, like Jenny has been thinking about these topics for a very long time and interviewing a lot of people, you know, while Cody and I both live in places that are being directly affected by these topics, we have said we are far from experts on this. Well, Jenny actually is an expert. So I'm really looking forward to my conversation with her. And then we are going to be having a couple more conversations with folks that we think just bring a particularly good perspective um, on some of this just to help us all think better about you know what's going on here. So yeah, this will go up Monday with Cody and then the next week, my conversation with Jenny Stuber. And I encourage all of you to check out her book, Aspen and the American Dream. Yeah. No, I'm definitely looking forward to, to that that talk because I'm I'm curious. I'm like, what do how do we do this? How do we how do we save our mountain town so that my buddies I grew up with in a in this area can eventually buy a house? Um you know, like live somewhere. Like I just had a, a family friends, guys I went to high school with up here. They have uh two kids, um and their family just got kicked out of their house because they were selling the house. The house is gonna be turned into short term rentals. Like they're on the streets and, you know, he's trying to figure out a place to live. I actually, one of my other friends who grew up, I grew up with here moved out of his house, um, so that they could live there. And he moved in with his girlfriend. So he was like, you know, essentially offering like a lending hand. Like that's literally how we're solving this. It reminds me of like, we're solving our health and, uh, insurance and industry crisis through GoFundMe. Like we're relying on the kindness of humans. You're like, we got to do something about this because that's not going to last forever. Ever. So um, it's, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I, I want to know how we're going to be able to solve this issue. Yeah. And just a couple other things on this. I'm going to include in the show notes to this episode, as we always do for these reviewing the news pieces, there were two pieces in the local paper here in Crested Butte, the Crested Butte News. One was an editorial by Mark Riemann. And I, I'm going to put a link to that. And then I'm going to include a link to this uh, article just literally here where, where I live. Mount Crested Butte Council weighs public concerns over STR regulations. And it will just, again, for people who care about this. And by the way, anybody listening to this living in a city who maybe isn't like, okay, I don't, I don't live in a mountain town. I don't quite know what y'all are dealing with. We are telling you this is the thing that is being talked about. This is a it that can't be sort of overstated, right? And so I think whether you live in a mountain town, you'll know what we're talking about. And if you don't, I think it would be good for you to understand these issues. So I will include links to those two articles. And then finally, I just kind of want to say this. Um We've been sitting here talking a lot about regulations and the best way to kind of regulate this these issues. I don't know if this sounds lame or not, but I think the other thing here is just the issue or the question of education, right? And Cody, in a lot of the conversations we've had, whether it's been, right, the topic about, say, backcountry conduct, 
or trail network use, right? And we had our thing about should these snowboarders who accidentally triggered, right, you know, this slide, you know, should should they be criminally punished? Should we just better understand like our own responsibilities when we each go into the backcountry? I did feel tempted to say like, I do think there should be a level where all of us can sort of think about our own part in these things. And so, you know, I don't know if you are planning your trip to Tahoe, maybe your default shouldn't be to, to Airbnb, you know, maybe it's like, I, I was just in Ketchum and I stayed in hotels I stay, it was, you know, I stayed in three different hotels. I didn't, I didn't look to Airbnb um, or VRBO. And I, you know, I, I'm just thinking, and on the rental side, I know this has kind of come out in comments, people that have been short-term renting their homes, maybe they can think a bit about what if I tried to provide long-term renting to locals in a community? Again, this is not going to be the thing that is going to be the primary mover. I think it probably will come down to regulation, but I don't feel like we should just shirk our own individual responsibilities in terms of thinking about where we might stay if we're traveling to a given place. And on the rental side, maybe there are some things that you know people can think about too, like is what I'm doing actually a good thing for the community? And I agree. And I, but God, man, I've recently learned friends of mine are short-term renting their house. And I'm like, really? Like, you're pretty, I'm like, wow, that's surprising to me. But the incentive is really strong. You can leave your house for a month and rent it out and get four or five grand. Yep. Like the, totally. that incentive totally. outweighs a lot of goodness in your heart yep. um, and you're standing in the community. But they're also really quiet about it is what I've learned. And I've just learned this recently. Um, I know I went through it. Um, the only way I was able to afford to buy a house in Tahoe, I got really lucky, bought at a low point, bought like actually the cheapest house per square foot in Tahoe at the time uh, five years ago. But the only way I could afford to buy a house was if it had some sort of of studio, something where I could rent out. It was like the business, the my everything. I was like, I have to do this. And that was what my parents were able to do. I learned from them because my dad was a high school teacher. My mom was a journalist. The only way they bought houses were, you know, having some sort of uh, kind of unit that they were able to rent out. So I bought a house with a unit. It's got a studio. And I went through that. I could be making guarantee four to five grand a month if I short-term rentaled it, but I don't. And I have a long-term renter in there who's been there for five years. And he's an x-ray technician. He's an awesome dude. I like love the guy and it's it's great. And I will say like, yes, there was some incentive. I like wanted someone to be at the house while I travel a ton, you know, just someone to kind of be there. Um, but I also was like, you know what? I can't be a part of this problem. I can't be just sitting there and like, truly concerned about this and almost in a feel like stabbing my own friends in the back that grew up here and can't afford to live here by then short-term renting it. So 
you do have to go through it. But I also understand the incentive is way too strong. It is. I, I mean, it's popped in my head a couple of times. You're like, man, I could really, I could buy a second house if I just short-term rented this thing. But you're like, well, do I really need to? No, I don't. This is, this is working well. So um, it's, yeah, I do think we have to think of our own individual solutions. But like you said, it's really going to come down to some sort of regulation and some sort of rules to make incentives and disincentives to actually do this. Yeah. And, and for those people who are locals who are short-term renting something to just absolutely make ends meet. I'm not, I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm all I'm doing is asking people to think through, well, you know, what, what might I be able to do? And that's just a different, that's just a different way to look at this than strict. Like, well, it's legal, so I can 100% do this, this or that. No, I get it. Like, I get it why my friends do yeah. it. I'm like, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. The, the incentive is strong. Yeah. So, and that's where you you really, you know, you can't. And I'm not going to say like, oh, I'm righteous and I'm right. good. Right. Because <laughs> right. I'm, you know, like there was there was incentive for me to have a long-term rental. Um, it was just I wanted more stability. And so, like, you, we work on incentives as humans. And so, you know, we, but we need, you need to change things. So, um, but yeah, well, I look forward to your podcasts on, on this. I look forward to learning more and figuring out what the hell we're going to do about it and hopefully save our mountain towns a little bit, make it a little bit better to live in. So, yep. uh, next topic, last topic. Um, so this was a big one, um, ski mountaineering in the Olympics. So, um, you know, there's a lot of news stories about it, but essentially ski mountaineering was, uh, included in the 2024, uh, Cortina Olympics. And, um, I've kind of put a jokingly tweet about this, whereas like, great. Now the next four years, I'm going to be having to describe to people what I do, <laughs> what I call ski mountaineering in the 50 is not an Olympic sport. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we're talking about schemo racing, rondonet racing racing essentially uphill racing with maybe some more technical elements and you obviously have to ski back down so the kind of stuff that killian journey is renowned for and um that was a, a big announcement. Um, I will point to Killian Jornet's post about this on July 20th as kind of the best take about it, which was like, he's really stoked on it. Um, you know, that this is going to be now an Olympic sport, but also, you know, seeing how the, the Olympics can change a format and denature its core values. Um, and the, 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 the actual kind of events that are included aren't necessarily representative of what he thinks true ski mountaineering is. So, um, you know, I'm, it's the same thing as I think the same debate we see with every sport that gets in the Olympics, whether it's skateboarding and rock climbing this year and surfing is like, great, but is it going to, you know, change the sport for the worse or um, create two dividing lines with it? Um, so uh, it's going to be I personally think it's going to be kind of cool. Um, I think something like schemo racing is going to benefit from it. Um, I think there's more people that are drawn to it that, you know, this is, it's almost like a, such a small niche sport that being in the Olympics is a good thing for it. Whereas like surfing and skateboarding is so big. The Olympics needs skateboarding and the Olympics needs surfing. So this to me, was like, I think it's going to be an actual positive for, for the sport and as a whole. And I'm actually kind of curious to watch it. I don't think I've ever watched a, an actual schema race and a Ron and a race before. So, um, I'll probably maybe get a little more into trying to watch some European races and see what, see what's going on with it before it goes in the Olympics. So kind of cool. Yeah. I'm in a hundred percent agreement here. And 
it's which is funny because I think a lot of times when we're like, oh, this new sport is, you know, bidding to be put into the Olympics or this is on the table. I'm not sure I can recall many instances where I've ever been like, oh yeah, no, that's good. That that actually makes sense. And you know, now whether you and I are right about this, I I, I just completely agree with what you're seeing saw this and thought this is this is cool this i think makes sense for all the reasons you said and so i'm on board as you are so it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds what i really like to this take that um so the backcountry magazine um link is to like or this is the article i was pointing to and they kind of just did the, the basic announcement and they've reposted an article by adam howard um about kind of schema racing being one day involved in it. And one of the things that was interesting is he kind of points to mountain biking being included in the Atlantic 96 games. And with that inclusion, all of a sudden there was a race to create new technology. Um, and, you know, there's, he was saying before that the race bags weighed 30 pounds. And then after that, it was in the years leading up to it, there was just such like a incredible technological development in mountain bikes to try and create the best gear for them. So that kind of side effect from schema racing, I'm most interested in because what's interesting to me is like, so for instance, Killian, Solomon athlete through and through for running, for schema racing, for everything. But pretty much every schema racer is using ski boots and bindings from the most niche manufacturers there are. So there's, I think it's Pierre Gagneau or something makes these like 500 gram boots that are just crazy. They're like they're lighter than tennis shoes. And those are the ski boots that someone like Killian uses because Solomon isn't even making that niche of a product. So in the lead up to this, we might see companies like Solomon going, all right, like let's make lighter, lighter boots, the lightest boot ever. If Killian is going to compete in this, or some of our other athletes are going to compete and, and compete with that, that niche Pierre Gagneau. Um, and then that technology then hopefully goes outwards to the skis that I use for my version of ski mountaineering and boots that, and whatnot. So that to me is a, like, I think actually a cool side effect that could happen. And I really liked in Adam Howard's article and I suggest people click it and rank, uh, read it. So um, that could be a cool thing, especially for, for all of us. Yeah, no, it, and it's nice. It's cool to be like, again, somebody else probably has their big con to state about this, but I, I it's, it feels kind of nice actually that you and I at least are both in agreement. Like this is an interesting development and, uh, and it's, I can't think of the clear and obvious downside here just yet. Ah, I think, I think to raise the profile of uphill athletes and how incredibly badass they are, that's pretty great too. So yeah. Should we talk about some, I hate that we call this media recommendations, but I don't know the better word. It's because it's not just, I mean, actually I have, I'm only books this week, so I could call this book recommendations, but 
Yeah, I'm actually, I'm almost in books too. Although I did on the way, like when I'm on long plane flights, I will ben, binge watch TV shows. So I can say a couple things like I'll just download on my Netflix or on my, you know, HBO on my iPad and just like binge watch an entire series while on the plane. So, um, but I'm kind of in the books category too. I just read um, two pretty interesting books and actually just a third one on this last trip. But one was called Pilgrim's Wilderness and I'm, I was drawn to it because it was a, it's about uh, McCarthy, Alaska, which is where I was um, as the kind of base point for flying out to Mount St. Elias. Um, so pretty fascinating book, kind of sad book as well, but it was a book about kind of McCarthy and a very specific family that had moved there. It was written by a journalist in the Anchorage Daily News. Also read um, by the same author that wrote Born to Run, um, this book called Natural Born Heroes, um, which was a book about Crete because I was just there. Um, so it was kind of like wanted to, you know, I like to read stuff about a place I'm at or whatnot. Um, but Christopher McDougall um, wrote Natural Born Heroes. Uh, it was a decent book. Um, it was kind of forced in a certain way. Um, There's two stories he was trying to combine as one. Um, one was the story of this uh, kidnapping of a Nazi general in World War II on Crete, which was pretty fascinating and talking about like Cretan mountain men and their their diets and their performance and what they do and whatnot. And, um, and then it was combining also just like natural human um, performance, because I think he kind of writes about that, like in Born to Run, um, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have read because it's an amazing book, talks about human performance and ultra running and whatnot. And he tried to do the same thing, but in a different sort of way, kind of more like mountain like mountain men, mountain women kind of talking about that and, and diet and springiness and elasticity and fighting and grappling and um, kind of this like real human kind of performance. Um, so that was interesting. I wouldn't say it was the best book because it was trying to combine two stories into one of Help Force, but it was an interesting book. What'd you, what'd you read? Well, I've already mentioned, and so we'll say it again, Jenny Stuber's Aspen in the American Dream. Yep. So been going through that. And again, um, we're going to be talking to Jenny in a week on this podcast. So grab that book and 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 dive in. I also, this is pretty fun. I've been rereading Doris Kern Goodwin's Team of Rivals, um, mm. which is about President Lincoln and the kind of cabinet he assembled around him. And it's you know, everybody calls this book a masterpiece. And if you haven't read it, you should definitely read it. But the thing that is so kind of fun and cool to me is that the reason that I, you know, the catalyst for me going back to reread this book was because of a conversation I had with Dave Ox, who is the executive director of the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association. And so, you know, Dave and I will meet up from time to time and grab a beer. And it's just like, Dave, how are things going at Simba? You know, what are you guys worried about? What's going well, whatever. And we just kind of catch up. And I learned in this conversation that Dave is like this civil war buff. Hmm. And I didn't see that coming, but our conversation to talk about trail networks and e-bikes and, you know, 
sort of mountain bike policies in general and how well different policies that have been enacted here in the Gunnison Valley, how's that working? We end up talking about, you know, Civil War stuff and Lincoln. And I recommended to Dave, it's one of my favorite, we call it more of an essay, but Henry David Thoreau's A Plea for Captain John Brown. And so like Dave went and picked that up and is reading that now. And I'm going back and reading Team of Rivals. And that's fun because the guy who runs a outdoor media company was meeting with the head of the local mountain bike association. And this is where it led us. And I like that kind of thing. Yeah, I do too. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I think maybe we should restrict this to just books. I don't know. Books. <laughs> no, because now, now I'm curious what I, I want to hear in a minute. Did you have any other book stuff or were those your two? Um, I just finished actually last night, this other book called the spy and the trader, which was, you know, good old. It's a true story about, um, uh, essentially a mole within the KGB and during the Cold War. Uh, it's a pretty real story. That was pretty, pretty fascinating. Kind of one of those like vacation reads. You're like, oh, this will be kind of fun to read. So um, that was the other thing I read. Um, I just finished last night, but I guess for TV shows. So I started, um, I downloaded because I've been, hearing that from a few friends that I needed to watch it, but Yellowstone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't checked eh. it out. Nah. Eh, I don't know. Not that it's kind of, it's rad setting Montana, you know, it's wealthy people. It's kind of the story of this like giant landowner being played by Kevin Costner and his cowboys and sons and his ranch, um, versus like property developers in Montana that are coming in trying to build condos and towns and whatnot versus the, um, native American tribes that are there. And the, the, problem with it to me is like uh one there's no heroes of it everyone sucks so you're kind of like ever you're just like cool this everyone sucks and i can't get behind anyone um but the funny part too to me is like having recently studied a lot of like native american history and whatnot like i'm completely siding with the native american tribe in this even though they try and paint him out to be kind of like shady and bad and you're like no like yeah these guys are completely right in everything they're saying um so it's kind of and you're like why are they evil for trying to take over the like wealthiest landowner in montana's land you're like yeah they (laughs) you buys this land exploits it does horrible things like they should try and take it over so i actually didn't finish the first season i'm like okay i'm done with it um not that great of a show wouldn't recommend it wow okay but what i did uh, watch which is interesting too because it's kind of the same premise um rich people drama and no one to really get behind is secession the first season of that i'm way um, in and i'm way in yeah so i i think i'm in now it took me a little bit uh-huh. though because you're like god everyone's a shithead in this these are all awful people yeah yeah all awful people but then you kind of realize it's like it's kind of a dark comedy and dark like tragic comedy in many ways and you start to kind of like like roman um one of the sons you're like god he's an annoying little prick and by the end you kind of find him funny (laughs) more than anything and uh yeah but uh yeah i think i'm i kind of got into but it took a little bit because same premise rich people doing rich people drama a lot of drama and events but then you know 
no heroes to get behind, but somehow much more well done and well acted and yeah, interesting too. Plus, you know, this is inspired by some of the stories from like Fox News and the that family. And um, I actually had a opportunity to go ski with one of the Murdochs last year and I declined it because I just really wasn't that interested. Um, but he was he was the good Murdoch, uh-huh. I will yep. say, the, yep. the one that is uh, like disowned the family. So I'm kind of like, oh, now I kind of want to meet him and see like, is some of these stories truly inspired? <laughs> because it seems like they tried to take some, yeah, some inspiration from that. You're right. It, there, there are no heroes, and yet I really enjoy that show, which now I feel creepy about. But it's it's almost like if there was such a thing as a really witty car crash. You know, we talk about you yeah. can't look away. It's kind of maybe yeah. that, and it, it is. Uh, bit of a window into a bizarro world and um yeah call it call it satire call it call it the strangest kind of power grabs and power dynamics um and and it is entertaining i mean in a in a very dark weird way yeah yeah well that's interesting i didn't know one i i have not watched yellowstone and i i kind of always forget that that was one like oh maybe i should check that out so you may have cooled my jets on that one but i'm i'm kind of glad you're uh you've you've started down the secession path yeah yeah i think i I think i got a little hooked on it so that'll probably i don't know yeah i'll probably get into that a little bit more just i just finished first season i mean first season ends really well yeah i mean that that ending episode is is strong yeah so you're like yep i think i'm in yeah Okay, quick book mention, and then I'll tell you about the thing I'm watching. I'm reading Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. Mm. Sleep is not I. I of yeah, you have a you have an interesting relationship <laughs> with sleep. You know, I'm not good at a lot of things, but sleep is one of the things I'm not that great at, and so I am trying to develop a better relationship with sleep and trying to, frankly, just you know, get more of it. And yeah and do sleep better. So it, it's been a really interesting, it's, it's a book about basically the science of sleep and um, so far so good. I can't say that I am yet. Yeah. I look forward to the day when I can be like, I am good at that sleep thing, but uh, I hope to get there someday. But I encourage people to check out why we sleep if you haven't already. Since it sounds like we need a hero, you know, you've talked about Yellowstone, no heroes, secession, no heroes. This is where it's time for me to tell people that I am back watching Ted Lasso, where Ah. if you need a hero, folks, and if you need reminders about the power of like kindness and empathy, Ted Lasso season two just dropped. The first episodes just dropped a week or two ago. And I I actually went back and rewatched season one. And then was honestly quite worried about season two, right? Because I, I, as people know, if you've listened to this podcast, I am a massive, massive Ted Lasso fan. And Ted is like my spirit animal and I need to strive to be more like him in many ways. But the first two episodes of season two, I'm very pleased. I can say that I'm very pleased, you know, and uh, the writers have done, the writers and actors have done a good job in kind of carrying on the, the spirit I think in the the cleverness of the first season and uh it really is it is a feel good show I know so that I if don't sound like I'm on an island here our friend and reviewer Paul Forward 
also is very much on the Ted Lasso bandwagon and kind of agrees with me that Ted ought to be our spirit animal type thing. So, you know, it's not just me. I've heard a lot of, it seems like it's, yeah, no, I got to get it. I, do you have to have an Apple TV subscription to get it? You do. I think you do, okay. but yeah. you know, do maybe I'll do it for a month and yeah. then sign off or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally do that. But yeah. you should a hundred percent watch it. It's I've heard nothing but really good things about that show yeah. and just like super. Yeah. And Jason today is awesome. So he is awesome for sure. So that's what I got. Cool. Well, uh, I was a, I felt like a good show. Man, we covered a lot of ground. We did. We usually do. We usually do. Well, yeah, here, here's hoping that very smart people start figuring out some of this stuff on the housing issues that we are in the middle of, you know, good luck to all athletes everywhere who might be dealing with mental health issues of one variety or another. And, uh, you know, hopefully we will all exercise good powers of empathy on those fronts. And, um, you know, last but not least, good luck to you and Elise. Yeah, I got a couple more months to go. So I'm mainly going to be around here prepping baby rooms, prepping for that and training and enjoying summer and try not to choke on wildfire smoke. <sighs> yeah, there's that. We didn't. <laughs> let's let's yeah. not go down that one let's... today. Um, are, no. are you are you are you working on, you know, breathing exercises? Are you going to be doing that? Is that a thing? we still do i think we've got those classes and yeah we got all that stuff in the on the line you know we're we got there's a lot of stuff that i don't know about that we got on the list okay. for this next uh, few months so uh look forward to it. i've written i've read a couple baby books i'm not recommending them necessarily because you're like well pretty niche thing so <laughs> trying to trying to learn as much as i can well nice well listen say hi to lise for me and uh as always sure. man good good catching up with you on on these little uh things we do likewise jonathan all right man take care you too. Bye. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And again, do not forget to become a Blister member if you want to guarantee a spot at our upcoming Blister Summit. Now, I also want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourselves and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.